I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I have two parts for you on today's podcast. In part one, I'll review Napoli's dramatic late win over Juventus on Sunday. I know I am very late to this one, but what Napoli fan doesn't want to keep talking about a win over Juventus? And in part two, I'll preview our match against Salernitana, which is now confirmed to be played on Sunday, and I'll talk a little bit about that whole situation as well. So let's start with the win over Juventus. There is so much to talk about from this match. There was the Federico Gatti lashout on Hvica Kvaraschelia. There was the VAR decision to overturn the Angel Di Maria goal. And of course, there was the late winner from Giacomo Raspadori. But I want to start at a higher level. I thought there were three distinct phases to this match. And conveniently enough, each phase was about 30 minutes long. Though Juventus were content to let Napoli have the ball, the first half hour of the match was very competitive, both sides looked threatening, but neither created that many clear-cut opportunities to score, either because the finishing was poor or because the final ball was poor. For Juve, Locatelli had a couple of speculative efforts from distance that missed the target, and Milik had a decent header over Oliveira that ended up being a fairly routine save for Meret. Just before the half-hour mark, Kostic beat Lobotka to the ball on the touchline, and he had Milik open for the early ball, but he overhit the pass. Likewise, for Napoli, Ndombele had a speculative left-footed effort sail over the bar after we did really well to play out of Juve's press, and on a couple of occasions, Lozano tried to go it alone instead of playing the pass first to Osimen after he intercepted Danilo's pass, and then he ignored Cavada's run after a lovely 1-2 with Osimen. 
What stood out to me the most during this opening half hour was Max Allegri's approach to this match, which was something Jura and I anticipated in our preview pod, and that is, it looked like Allegri was trying to replicate what Stefano Pioli did in Milan's three wins over Napoli, but using a traditional Juventus three-at-the-back system. Daniele Rugani was a bit of a surprise starter for Allegri, but I thought he did a fantastic job of marking Osiman. Like Kyer and Tomori, Rugani was tight on Osiman throughout the match and gave him very little space to work in. Similarly, we saw Cavada double and triple teamed, usually by Gatti and Quadrado. Just like how Milan had Tonali and Krunic help defend Cavada, Allegri asked Matthias Sule to play that role. He came back quite often to help defend, which also made us understand why Sule was in the starting 11 to begin with. Sule is actually a really nice player. He almost seems out of place at Juve because he's such a technical player, but Juve used such a pragmatic approach that they don't really exploit his talents, whereas I think he would really shine in a system like Spalletti's. You see how well technical players like Zielinski, Elmas, and Cavada do at Napoli. Anyhow, back to Allegri's replication of Pioli's tactics. He assigned Fabio Miretti to shadow Stanislav Lobotka just like Ismail Benacer did. And finally, Allegri also set up to attack on the break. I thought Juve's most threatening players in that first half hour were the two wide players, Filip Kostic and Juan Cuadrado. Cuadrado had a decent shot stopped by Meret. Again, there was plenty of power, but it was straight at Meret, and Kostic was creating all kinds of problems with his runs and crosses on the left wing. But for some reason, Juve seemed to retreat after the opening half hour, so the final 15 minutes of the first half and the opening 15 minutes of the second half, Napoli were on the front foot. When Allegri made his first changes around the hour mark, it was apparent that he was trying to tire Napoli out, much like a boxer tries to tire out his opponent with defensive tactics before sinking the knockout blow. That was a bit of a risky tactic though, Napoli had a few chances in that opening 15 minutes of the second half, but once again, the finishing was quite poor. Cavara, Ndombele, and Osimen all had chances that either missed the target, or they were shots that were straight at Wojtek Szczesny. But Allegri's tactics very nearly paid off. He brought on two big guns in Di Maria and Chiesa for the final half hour of the match, and Juve immediately looked more dangerous, again particularly from the break. Credit to Spalletti, he responded with Zielinski and Elmas and then eventually Raspadori, though I suspect the Zielinski and Elmas substitutions probably would have happened regardless. In any event, we stayed true to our identity and continued to attack, even if that exposed us to the counterattack. I was okay with that though, because even at the Allianz, we weren't settling for a draw. We were playing football and trying to win the match. And that's why I felt like we were deserving winners. Now look, there's no wrong tactics in football. Matches can be won in different ways. Juve dominated the league for nearly a decade playing this way. But it did feel like the team that was playing football beat the team that was playing anti-football. Now, as is often the case in a match that is as tight as this one was, or like the matches against Milan, which were tight as well, they tend to come down to a few episodes so let's talk about those moments in the match. Of course, the most controversial decision was the VAR cancelling Angel Di Maria's goal in the 82nd minute. Now, let me say this up front before I get into my take on this. 
as a Napoli fan, there is no way for me to not be biased about this, no matter how hard I try to be objective, and I really do try to be objective on the podcast, I think subconsciously I'm always going to lean towards Napoli on these close decisions. That said, to me, it was very clear that Milik caught Lobotka's shin before he made contact with the ball. It was also clear to me that Lobotka was ahead of Milik and would have gotten to the ball had Milik not lunged in with the slide tackle. The notion that Milik got there first and was fouled by Lobotka is just ridiculous. I even saw one person on social media suggesting that Cuadrado's contact with Juan Jesus was no different than Milik's contact with Lobotka. If you genuinely think that, then I recommend you just stop watching the sport altogether because that is beyond ridiculous. Now, I heard a lot of people saying that this was a 50-50 play. I'm not so sure about that. By definition, a 50-50 play means that two players are equally likely to get to the ball. And based on what I just said, I don't think Milik was as likely to get to that ball as Lobotka was. But even if we grant that it was a 50-50 ball, that in itself does not mean a foul was not committed. That is, a foul can still be committed on a 50-50 ball. So that's the incident taken in isolation, but of course, there was quite a bit of context around the incident, most importantly, the goal being scored immediately after that incident. A lot of people were questioning whether there was sufficient contact to warrant chalking off the goal, and I'm not just talking about random people on social media, I heard that from a lot of reputable football people, which is important to note as well. The neutrals we're very torn on this decision. As Napoli fans, we think it's pretty obvious, but quite a few people thought the wrong decision was made here. Now, to an extent, I can understand the logic. A lot had to happen after that incident before the goal was scored. Locatelli had to play the pass to Di Maria. He had to do well to stay onside at midfield. Di Maria carried the ball to the Napoli area. He had to cut back and then finish with a little bit of a fortunate bounce off Juan Jesus. So I can see why Juventini would have felt like it was a harsh decision to lose a goal over, but it's a dangerous game to play to start talking about degrees of fouls. There can only be two options, foul or no foul. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in endless discussions about whether there was enough of a foul anytime something like this happens. Perhaps the worst argument I saw from Juventini was that the foul on Lobotka shouldn't have been called because immediately before that play, Elmas appeared to foul Fajoli, and so the two fouls should cancel each other out. That is just not how it works. If you want to argue that Elmas fouled Fajoli, then I would say, okay, the official should have called the foul there, in which case, the goal still wouldn't have happened. So taken all together, I think the correct decision was made. Now, up to that point... I felt like we had actually been on the short end of the stick as far as VAR decisions had gone. There were two incidents in the first half that could have potentially helped us. The first was the potential handball by Manuel Locatelli in the area. My initial reaction to that was that Locatelli's arm was swinging away from his body and therefore it was in an unnatural position. His hand clearly contacted the ball, therefore I thought it should have been a penalty. But then I saw someone point out that his arm was behind his body, so I changed my position on this one. I think it would have been harsh to give the penalty there. I say this often, but I think the best way to assess a call like this one is to ask yourself, how would you have felt if the roles were reversed and a penalty was given against Napoli for the same thing? 
I'm pretty sure we would have lost our mind, so I am fine with the non-call there. But as far as I can tell, most Napoli fans accepted that decision. The one that nobody accepted was Federico Gatti's closed fist whack on Cavada's shoulder riding up to the Georgian's head. Sure, maybe Cavada exaggerated a little bit on the reaction, but there is no doubt that this was a deliberate attempt to harm an opponent. The dead giveaways were Gatti's grimace while he was swinging, and then his reaction immediately after it. It was as if Gatti realized what he had done and what the potential consequences might have been, namely a direct red card, but for whatever reason, Gianluca Aureliano did not call Fabri to the monitor, so had they done that, we probably would have played most of the match with an extra man, so for me, I don't feel too bad about Di Maria's goal being disallowed. The final episode of the match was of course Giacomo Raspadori's game-winning goal. It was only his second of the Serie A campaign, but both were late goals in 1-0 victories. The other was against Spezia earlier in the season. This goal was the culmination of a pretty wild end to the match, starting with Juan Cuadrado's shameful attempt to win a penalty kick. I think he was even fortunate to avoid a yellow card for simulation. Fabri's reaction was pretty funny. In true Italian fashion, he reacted with a hand gesture that kind of means, are you kidding me? Napoli came back the other way and created two glorious chances. The first was the result of a brilliant move by Piotr Zielinski, who reminded all of us that he's been dribbling like Cavada since Cavada was just a teenager. The nutmeg on Gatti was great, but as I noted on Twitter, the return pass to Osimen was even more impressive. Most players don't even see that pass, let alone execute it. Certainly none of the Juve players there saw the pass coming because their momentum took all of them in the opposite direction. Osimen probably should have scored, but his first touch was heavy, which allowed Chesney to make the save. Raspadori was actually the player who won the second ball after the save by Chesney, then we rotated the ball around to the right side of the park, and then it was the three substitutes who combined on the goal. Zielinski made a lovely little fake on Locatelli, which even got Danilo to bite before playing the ball wide to Elmas. Elmas crossed the ball first time to Raspadori at the second post, and then Raspadori hit the ball flush on the volley with his supposed weaker left boot. Raspadori was wide open for a couple of reasons. First, Rugani was occupied marking Osimen, as I mentioned earlier, that was his assignment. Second, Fagioli, who made the mistake against Sassuolo in Juve's 1-0 defeat in the previous round of Serie A, which caused him to cry on the bench, was late to pick up Raspadori at the second post. But most of all, Cuadrado, who attempted to win that penalty kick, still had not gotten back for either of Napoli's chances, and it was his side of the park that was vacant. Elmas gave an interview to Radio Kiss Kiss on Thursday, and he said that before every match, he tells Jack Raspadori that if he gives him an assist, Jack will have to give him 500 euros, but he still hasn't been paid. Now, Many people were quick to point out that it was Napoli's first win over Juventus at the Allianz in five years, five years and a day to be exact. Of course, the last time we won at the Allianz was the 2017-18 campaign when Koulibaly scored the winner in stoppage time. Per the club's official social media accounts, it was the same result, the goal was scored in the same minute, but the ending will be different. With the win, we are now very, very close to winning our first Scudetto in 33 years. I'll preview the Salernitana match in part 2, 
but all we need is a win in that match and for Lazio to not win their match against Inter to clinch the Scudetto. Now neither of those things are guaranteed, but the planning for the festivities is certainly well underway. The last thing I want to talk about in part 1, which was a great suggestion by our good friend Mike, is Giovanni Di Lorenzo, our fearless captain. We have some great leaders on this team, but it is hard to imagine anyone else wearing the captain's armband, which is pretty crazy considering he's been wearing it for less than a season. Back in November, some school children were allowed to watch Napoli's training session at Castel Volturno, and Luciano Spalletti spoke to them after the session. He said, There are two ways to play sports. Two ways of being champions. Football and studies. They are two fundamental sports, playing football and studying. Studying is also a sport, especially if you play for me. And to play for Napoli, you have to understand what you have to do and where you want to go. For this, you need to know how to kick the ball well, and you have to know what you are seeing and what you are hearing. They are two equal sports. Di Lorenzo is the captain because he has the best report card of them all. The captain is the one with the best report card. It's not the one who is best at playing football. Di Lorenzo is good at playing football as well, but above all, he has the best report card that we have. Now, obviously Spalletti was trying to teach these kids the importance of doing well in school, but at the same time, I think he was being genuine. We all see how hard Di Lorenzo works on the pitch. Not only does he lead all Napoli players in minutes played, if you exclude goalkeepers, he leads the entire league in minutes played as well. Even with the goalkeepers, he's still 6th in the league. And that's nothing new for him either. Di Lorenzo has made at least 38 appearances and as many as 49 appearances in each of his last 6 seasons in professional football. So it's no surprise that he is the hardest worker off the pitch as well. Another thing Mike noted was that Di Lorenzo is extremely steady and determined in his emotional makeup. We see that on the pitch as well. While he still speaks to the officials, as captains must do, he is certainly not a complainer. He is not emotional at all. He does not allow an official's decision or poor play of his teammates or a big miss affect the way he plays. I don't think we can say the same thing about our previous captain, I was and still am a big fan of Lorenzo Insigne and I think a lot of people changed their opinion of him after he left which is fine everyone's entitled to their own opinions but I think we can all agree that Insigne wasn't a great captain. I think Vincenzo said it last time he was on the pod some people are natural leaders and others are not. I don't think Insigne was a natural leader while it appears that Di Lorenzo is. This is a guy who was playing for FC Matera in Serie C in 2017 and has been a serial winner ever since. He moved to Empoli in Serie B for the 2017-18 season and they won the league to earn promotion back up to Serie A. He transferred to Napoli for the start of the 2019-20 campaign and was immediately called up to Roberto Mancini's Italy team for Euro 2020 qualifiers. Of course, Italy won the Euros and Di Lorenzo was the starting right back. And now, he's captain Napoli to the brink of their first Scudetto in over three decades. So shout out to Giovanni Di Lorenzo. With so many of Napoli's leaders departing last summer, it was really important that someone stepped up and Di Lorenzo has certainly done that, along with a few others like Osimen and Kim. Okay, that will do for part one. 
in part 2 we will preview our match on Sunday against Salernitana. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash pod. It's entirely voluntary, there are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at forzanapolipress.com. And thank you so much to Eric for becoming a Patreon. Okay, so let's preview our match at the weekend against Salernitana. This match was originally scheduled to be played on Saturday at 6pm local time or noon eastern, but after a long and pretty ridiculous review process, it was eventually moved to Sunday at 3pm local time or 9am eastern time. I don't know why, nobody seems to know why this was such a long and arduous process. The chatter about moving the match started shortly after our win over Juventus, People quickly realized that that result, combined with Lazio's loss to Torino, as well as Lazio's upcoming match against Inter, meant that we could realistically, mathematically win the league in round 32. As I said at the end of part 1, the combination of a Napoli win and a Lazio draw or loss would be enough to do it, but it took seemingly forever to effect this change. It all started on Tuesday, or two days after Napoli's victory over Juventus, but there was also a hint on Monday. Jevi Napoli Basket made a request to the Lega Basket Serie A to move their match up from Sunday to Saturday. Now, they might have just been thinking about it from their perspective. If Napoli won on Saturday, then Sunday would have been a complete disaster in the city. At the same time... De Laurentiis had already begun plans to postpone the match. I think everyone knew that the only way they could actually pull this off was to go through the Ministry of the Interior because it was highly unlikely that the league would move the match simply at the request of Napoli. On Tuesday, there was a meeting between the Prefect of Naples, Claudio Palomba, the Mayor of Naples, Gaetano Manfredi, the Commissioner, Alessandro Giuliano, and Napoli President Aurelio De Laurentiis. And out of that meeting came the request from the prefect to move the match. The next day, which was Wednesday, the request was reviewed by the National Observatory on Sporting Events. They spent a while deliberating before ultimately deciding to refer the case to the CASMS, which is the Analysis Committee for the Safety of Sporting Events. The CASMS meeting at the Viminale on Thursday involved Prefect Palomba, Commissioner Giuliano, Provincial Commander of the Carabinieri, Enrico Scandone, and Councillor Antonio De Jesu, representing the municipality of Naples. And if I'm not mistaken, they actually met twice on Thursday, and finally at 5.30pm, Palomba asked for the match to be moved. The league didn't want to move it, but because this request was coming from the Ministry of the Interior, not from the club, they had no choice 
but to comply. Now, I get the logic for wanting to move the match, of course, assuming the results go as we want them to, which I think is a big if, by the way. We'd rather win the league with 52,000 fans sitting in the Maradona rather than on their couches watching Inter Lazio. But this decision had a massive logistical impact on the entire city from Napoli fans to various other sporting clubs and events in the city. First and foremost, a lot of individuals were affected by this change when you consider how many people booked flights and hotels expecting to watch the match on Saturday and either had to rearrange their plans or get a refund on their ticket. Similarly, any locals who made arrangements, say they took the day off of work, now found themselves in a similar predicament. And to make matters worse, the club, through Ticket 1, does not permit people to change the name on their tickets, which I'm sure there is a valid reason for, probably related to getting people into the stadiums who shouldn't be. But the only option is to get a refund, so some people are actually concerned now that for that reason, there could be a lot of empty seats in the stadium. Both La Repubblica and Corriere dello Sport were critical of this decision as well. La Repubblica published an article scolding Palomba and Lega Serie A president Lorenzo Casini, who were basically the two people who had the final say on this matter. They asked, what about all those fans who bought plane tickets and booked hotels betting on Napoli to win the Scudetto in the middle of the week? What about those who, in the middle of the May 1st long weekend, went crazy to find a room in Naples on a Saturday night? Corriere dello Sport echoed those sentiments. They said it took four days between the prefecture and the police headquarters to be able to find the most banal solution to a false problem and to remove the veil of apprehension already scrambled by the wind. It will be played on Sunday the 3rd of April at 3 p.m., damaging the Neapolitans who have booked flights and hotels so as not to miss this kind of advent, forcing the people of Salerno to stay home. They also called the public order a fig leaf, suggesting it was a convenient excuse to change the dates because no one would argue against a decision made in the interest of public order. Beyond the public, a host of other sports teams were impacted by this decision as well. Staying in Serie A, a couple of other matches had to be rescheduled as well. Napoli were supposed to play against Udinese on Tuesday, so that match had to be moved because Napoli couldn't play twice in three days with only one day off in between. And if you're wondering why the match was moved to Thursday instead of Wednesday, it's because Roma play in Monza on Wednesday, so they wanted to avoid another clash on the A1 like we saw earlier in the year. However, playing on Thursday then had a knock-on effect for Udinese. Their next match against Sampdoria had to be moved to Monday. Curiously, Salernitana's match against Fiorentina on Wednesday was not moved. The councillor of the municipality of Salerno expressed his frustration with the decision. He called it an act of arrogance of the Neapolitans, saying that Salernitana's commitments cannot be postponed to organize a party. He said this once again portrays an older brother spirit of the Neapolitans towards Salernitana. While he recognized the importance of public order, he said public order must be guaranteed, not circumvented. Salernitana president Danilo Yarvolino, who is Napolitano himself, basically said the same thing, and the mayor of Salerno, Vincenzo Napoli, curiously enough, asked for the Fiorentina match to be postponed by one day as well, just like Udinese and Napoli was, so that Fiorentina doesn't have the advantage of an extra day of rest, 
but so far I have not seen any movement on that match. Then there are a number of Napoli-based sports teams outside of Serie A that had to react to this decision. Napoli's basketball team, as I mentioned earlier, Napoli Basket, were scheduled to play against Pesaro on Sunday, so they moved their match up to Saturday. That was the first real sign that the Napoli-Salernitana match could actually be moved. Similarly, Napoli Femminile were supposed to play on Sunday against San Marino, and they've also had to move their match up to Saturday. And Napoli Futsal tried to move their match against Pomezia up to Saturday, but their request was declined by the Futsal division. Outside of sport, there were a couple of other events that were impacted by this decision. Jean-Paul Gasparian was supposed to do a piano concert at the Teatro San Carlo, but that had to be cancelled. And on top of it all, Comic-Con is in Napoli this weekend as well at the Mostra do Tremare, which is also in Fuorigrotta, just a stone's throw away from the Maradona. That's way too big of an event to change, so they're going to have Comic-Con and the Napoli-Salernitana match happening at the same time. And finally, this decision also impacted the broadcasters who had to adjust their broadcast schedules. Mind you, looking at the calendar, I think they might actually have benefited from this change, aside from all the logistics required to have to rebook people for a different day. The original schedule had Napoli-Salernitana playing at the same time as Roma-Milan, so viewers would have been divided for that time slot. Now, the same viewers can watch both of those matches live, as well as Inter-Lazio, which is at a distinct time as well, so overall, the viewership should actually be better. Now, to be fair, aside from De Laurentiis wanting to win on the field, having all these events happening at the same weekend is a legitimate safety concern. Because we need help from Inter who play on Sunday and who made it clear that they have no intention of changing their time slot, if there is going to be a party, it's going to be on Sunday. So the more events that can be played on Saturday or just rescheduled to another date altogether, the better. If those events are on Saturday and Napoli are on Sunday, then everyone attending the events on Saturday can do so peacefully and return home without having to traverse through tens of thousands of people partying in the streets. So hopefully everything goes to plan, first in terms of the sporting results and then in terms of public order because one comes after the other. Obviously, if Lazio win or if Napoli don't win, then a lot of people would have seemingly been impacted for nothing. And I say seemingly because the Ministry of the Interior has to plan for what could happen. They cannot be reactive. And if Lazio don't win and we do... Hopefully no one gets hurt and everyone respects the city. I think the plan is to create a large pedestrian area with no access to vehicles or scooters just outside of the stadium. There will be tons of police officers and firefighters to help maintain control. They will have doctors walking around on foot in case anyone needs medical assistance. So they're doing what they can, but honestly, if we win the title on Sunday, the whole city is going to be turned upside down. They are going to be going wild and I think there is no way that that can be controlled. So that's the long story of how this match was moved to Sunday. Let's talk a little bit about the match itself next, and a little bit about our opponent. Salernitana have actually been in really fine form of late, particularly for a team who was just outside of the relegation zone for a good while. They were 16th in the table for 7 straight rounds, but having gone unbeaten in their last 8 league matches... 
Salernitana are now in a very comfortable position. They're 14th in the table, 7 points clear of Hellas Verona in the final relegation position. Actually, with Spezia's loss to Mons on Friday, Hellas Verona could well dig themselves out of the relegation zone when it seemed for a long time like they were destined for Serie B. They have a very winnable match against Cremonese on Sunday. But what's been most impressive about Salernitana's recent run of form is that they've earned the results against some very good clubs. All of their opponents during this unbeaten run are in the top half of the form table over the last 10 rounds. It started with an impressive 3-0 victory over Monza, who have been very good this season. They drew Sampdoria, which was probably a disappointing result, but then they responded with a draw against Milan. They followed that up with a draw against a very good Bologna side, and then two rounds later, they drew against Inter. Then they tied Torino, whose form has dropped a little bit of late, but even Juric sides are always so difficult to score against. And finally, they smashed Sassuolo last round. Even with that loss, Sassuolo have the third best record in the league in the second half of the season behind only Napoli and Lazio. So this is not a Salernitana side to be taken lightly. Now, a big reason for Salernitana's success is forward Bulaidia. He missed a couple of matches in late February and early March with a minor calf injury, but he has since returned with a vengeance. He has three goals and two assists in his last seven matches, and he really seems to be enjoying himself on the pitch. He was all smiles after scoring Salernitana's second goal against Sassuolo. Paulo Souza will have a few extra weapons at his disposal as well, with Giulio Maggiore and Lorenzo Pirola expected to be back in the squad. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Napoli's lineup pretty much picks itself. Luciano Spalletti will line up in his usual 4-3-3 formation with Alex Meret in goal. Amir Rachmani came off the bench for the final few minutes of the Juve match, so after a week of training, he should return to the starting 11, playing alongside Kim Min-jae at centre-back. Mario Rui is still on the recovery table with that right fibula injury, so Matthias Oliveira will start again at left-back, and of course Giovanni Di Lorenzo will start at right-back. With Tengi and Dombele starting against Juventus, we should see our usual midfield trio for this match. Stanislav Lobotka will play in the Regista, with Piotr Zelinski to his left and Andre Frank Zambuangisa to his right. On Friday, Matteo Politano did work in the gym and the pool, so he's not yet trained on the pitch, which suggests that he is a ways away from returning from injury. That means Chucky Lozano will start again on the right wing. Finally, Huicha Kvaraschelia will start on the left wing and Victor Osimen will play at striker. Since taking the reins for Salernitana, Paulo Souza has lined up in a 3-4-2-1 formation with Memo Ochoa in goal. With Federico Fazio missing a lot of time with a calf injury, Souza's preferred back three is Norbert Giomber, Lorenzo Pirola, and Flavius Daniliuk. Pirola is available despite being removed from the Sassuolo match with an injury, but if he is not fit to play, then we will probably see Matteo Lovato play on the right side of the back three. Souza also has a ton of options at center back with Dylan Braun, William Ekong Trust, and Valerio Montavani all on the bench. Souza has quite a few options in the midfield as well. He's missing Domen Chernigoy due to a calf injury, so we'll see Lasana Kulibali and one of Emil Bohinen, Tony Vilhena, and Hans Nikoluzi Kavilia 
play in the center of the park. I think we'll see Vilhena play in that role for this match. Domagoj Bradrich is the preferred option on the left side of the midfield, while Pasquale Mazzocchi should start on the right side of the midfield to help defend Cavada. Finally, for the front three, we've seen Souza use two different combinations. Sometimes he plays Antonio Candreva and Bulaidia behind Christoph Piontek. Other times he plays Candreva with Grigoros Castanos behind Bulaidia. Based on the reports I've seen, Souza is going to go with the latter, Candreva, Castanos, and Dia. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is we need to keep our cool. With the game being postponed, we will know the outcome of the Inter-Lazio match immediately before this match begins. If Lazio won, then I suppose there will be slightly less pressure on the players because they'll know that this match won't decide the Scudetto. But if Lazio don't win, then there will be a ton of pressure on our boys. But I think it's something they can handle and something they will probably even embrace. At the end of the day, they'll know that even if they don't win, there will still be plenty of time to win the league because this is not a cup final. Also, we're playing at the Maradona and despite the risk I mentioned earlier about empty seats, the stadium should be absolutely rocking. One of the Ultra groups put out a statement asking all fans to bring two flags to the stadium, one for themselves and another for a Napoli fan who is no longer with us and deserved to be there. While the players know that even a match against Salernitana won't be easy, they're confident at the same time. In that same interview with Radio Kiss Kiss, Elmas said it's not going to be an easy match against Salernitana because if I were them, I wouldn't want them to win the Scudato against us. But he added, if Lazio don't win, we certainly won't miss this opportunity and we will beat Salernitana. In order to do that, they'll have to beat Guillermo Ochoa, which is my second key to the match. While you might not notice it looking at the stats, Ochoa has been one of the best goalkeepers in the league since he joined Salernitana in January. He's second worst in the league in goals against per 90, but it's certainly through no fault of his own. In fact, he's made at least one ridiculous save that actually prevented a goal legitimately in pretty much every single match that he's played for Salernitana this season. On average, Ochoa has faced more shots on target than any other keeper in the league. With Ochoa in goal, Salernitana have conceded 5.7 shots on target per match. Marco Carnesecchi is second on the list. Cremonese have allowed 5.41 shots on target per match over Carnesecchi's 22 starts. And third on the list is Salernitana's other goalkeeper, Luigi Seppe. Over his 17 starts, Salernitana have allowed 5.12 shots on target. That tells you that this did not become an issue since Ochoa's arrival. Rather, it's been an issue all season. That makes this a good matchup for us because we lead the league with 167 shots on target, which is an average of 5.4 per match. However, those stats might be a little bit skewed from the first half of the season. Since returning from the international break, our best shot on target percentage, meaning the number of shots that hit the target out of the total number of shots, was 35.3%, which I suppose is not so bad if you're taking a lot of shots then it's not too bad to get a third of your shots on target. However, if you contrast with the Lecce match where we only attempted 9 shots, then a third of them 
isn't so great. We can kind of see this challenge anecdotally as well. If you look back at our recent matches, which has been our worst form of the season, we seem to create plenty of chances, but our finishing has been poor. As a result, we have scored only three goals in our last six matches in all competitions, and we haven't scored more than a single goal in any of those six matches. With a keeper like Ochoa in goal, our finishing will need to be better if we want to score more than one goal. It's really important that we score more than one goal because Salernitana have scored at least a goal in each of their last six matches, and those were not easy matches to score in. They scored against Milan, Bologna, Inter, and Torino in that stretch, and they just put three past a Sassuolo team who have been in excellent form of late. My final key to the match is to mark tight and close down Salernitana shooters. Since Souza took over, they've scored most of their goals in two ways, from the set piece and from shots taken from the edge of the area or just outside the area. Aside from Bulaidia, who leads the team with 11 goals, Salernitana have plenty of players who are capable of striking the ball from distance. In recent matches alone, we've seen Lasana Koulibaly score a couple of beautiful goals with strikes from the edge of the area. Vilhena and Castano scored screamers from the edge of the area against Torino and Monza respectively. And technically, Antonio Candreva scored from outside the area against Inter as well. But I'm pretty sure that was just a poor cross that somehow sailed perfectly into the top corner at the far post. And then the center backs are threats from the corner kick. We'll see if Lorenzo Pirola is fit to play, but if he does, he is definitely a player to watch out for on the set piece. He has only two goals this season, but both were scored in the last five matches and both were headers from the corner kick. I don't think we're going to keep Salernitana off the score sheet, but I also think we are going to end this run of one goal or less in our last six matches. So if we can limit Salernitana to only one goal, then I think we will walk away with all three points. That leads me to my prediction. I'm going to go with a 2-1 Napoli victory. As this could be the match that wins us the title, I'm going to give the goals to Victor Osimen and Kvica Kvaraschelia. They've led the team this season in goal scoring, so I think it would only be fitting if they were the players to score the goals to clinch the title, though I must admit... I actually think Lazio are going to spoil the fun by beating Inter in the early match. If they don't, then Luciano Spalletti could become the first coach to win the league with six matches still to be played. The media tried their best to get Spalletti to comment on the prospect of winning the title in his pre-match Conferenza Stampa, but he maintained that so long as we need another point, he refuses to get ahead of himself. He noted that he did not celebrate after Cavada's goal against Atalanta or Raspadori's goal against Juventus. Personally, I think if and when we win this title, Spalletti is going to let all of his emotions out, but until then, he will continue to hold it all together as that's what he needs to do to keep his team focused. Spalletti also acknowledged Salernitana's current run of form, but if I'm being honest, they're probably fortunate to have drawn some of those matches. Other than the win over Monza, Salernitana's highest XG in their last 7 matches was 1.3, which was in the 3-0 win over Sassuolo. During the 6 straight draws, their XG was 1.1 or less, and in 4 out of those 6 matches, 
their opponent had a significantly higher XG than they had. In other words, if those same matches were repeated numerous times, Salernitana probably would have lost four of them. For me, that's enough to be fairly confident that if Napoli can keep their composure, which I think they will, in fact, as I said before, I think they are going to embrace this opportunity, then we should win this match rather convincingly. Okay, that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoy the match. Likewise, I hope you enjoyed this preview. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps us to grow the pod. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me most of the time on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, but you can also find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. I will be back next week to review this match. Hopefully we are talking about Napoli being the champions, the first champions other than Juve, Milan, or Inter over the last 20 years. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.